Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of this great conversation that we get to have over all these episodes with amazing people. And uh, we couldn't do it without you out there. So just thank you for being a part of this conversation. Thank you for your download. I'm Phil Dark, your host. And with me is Brandon Stiver, my co-host, my brother. Uh, Brandon, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I am, uh, I'm doing well. It's my wife's birthday today. Somehow I think that's uh, two years in a row that I'm recording on her birthday. So I don't know if that's a good thing or what, but happy birthday to the love of my life, Melissa. And, uh, this will obviously release in a few weeks, but, but yeah, so it's a, it's a good day. I'm taking a half day, going to bring some takeout from the office and it'll be good. I hope the takeout isn't from the office. No. Okay, Unless it was good. coffee, because that's all they serve okay. up here. Okay. All right. Good, good. Because I think she deserves more than that. So I, I, I'm sure you're going to take care of her really well with the kids We're today. So going to hit up a Thai food restaurant or a Mexican nice. restaurant or something good. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. Hopefully they don't have both Thai and Mexican, because that might be a red flag. That would um, be weird. But uh, anyway, you know, I, uh, I, I think that maybe it's just the best birthday present you can give her is just being able to interview great people and helping other people. I know that that, that would bring joy to her, presumably. I'm, I'm hopeful that it would bring joy to her to know that we're helping a lot of people. So, you know, it, it's not my wife's birthday because I'm, I'm a better husband than you are, Brandon. Um, Probably. But uh, no, I, I doubt that. I doubt <laughs> that uh, very much. My wife would, my, my kids would definitely probably. Nah, well, now you Who just, knows? you just raised this perplexing question of whether or not our wives lis- listen to the podcast and yeah. uh, Melissa I know the answer not. to that. I know the answer to that too. Mm -hmm. And it's a similar answer on this end. Um, She hears me enough at home, I think is what it is. So she doesn't need to listen to it on every so often. I'll be like, you got to listen to this one. It's, it's like Kurt Thompson. I I had her listen to that one for sure. And uh, a couple others she's, I've, I've, I've kind of put her away, but, but for the most part, you know, I think that she hears it, you know, through vicariously through, you know, I'm sure Melissa, it's the same way, but anyway, that's not what people want to hear about right now. They want, to hear about, um, you know, who we got on today. They want to hear of this great conversation because that's why people are tuning in. And um, so who do we have? Yeah, today we have uh, Sarah Winograd on the podcast and and I'm looking forward to this. So Sarah is uh, somebody that I've been following along with. I, I'm pretty sure that our friend Alicia Pinizzato had mentioned her at one point to me. And they're obviously both in Atlanta. And forgive me if I get that wrong, Alicia or Sarah. But um I got connected with her on LinkedIn, which is basically the only social media that I use nowadays. Uh, and even that I'm tempering. But man, oh me, oh my oh. If that's a, like an old man saying. Uh, I uh, have just really enjoyed the type of content that she is posting. Uh, her stories have been really compelling. And the program that she's running down there in Georgia is... Um, is just remarkable. And uh, as I was just kind of thinking, man, who do we, it's 2023 now, who do we want to get on the show? Uh, this was somebody that I was just like, why don't I just reach out to Sarah? I, I, I didn't know her. I think we have a couple mutual contacts potentially, but the main thing was this program looks like something that we need to talk about. So we're going to talk a lot about family preservation. We're going to talk about the effects of poverty on vulnerable families and talk about the child welfare system in general, uh, you know, in the U.S. more broadly, but quite specific to to their context there in Georgia. But um, I, I think this you guys are going to get a lot out of this because uh, that's that's how I found myself to be uh, just from just from reading Sarah. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. Awesome. Let's do it. Well, Sarah, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. It's great to have you here today. Great to be here. Yeah, you know, so as as always on on this podcast, we we love to hear the stories behind the person and and you know how you got to be where you are today and how you grew a passion for orphan and vulnerable children and families. And so can you just share that with our audience? You know, a lot of people probably don't know who you are, um, but how you became involved in uh, with vulnerable families and those involved with child welfare. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm the program manager of Together for Families. 
We serve families who have child welfare involvement and are at risk of losing their children to foster care. Um, we're a program under Advocates for Children. Advocates for Children is an umbrella organization. So talking about how I got involved with serving vulnerable families and children, well, I was trying to think about it um, when I got actually some of the pre-notes. You guys gave me a little prep. But um, pretty much my whole life, my dad was a social worker who became a pastor. We lived in upstate New York, um, and we moved when I was 11 years old overseas to um, the country of Belarus, which is a former Soviet Republic. At the time when we moved to Belarus, you know, there were still long lines for things like cheese or eggs. The The country was still rebuilding from Pitystroika, from the collapse of the Soviet Union. And um, there was a lot of poverty. And so my parents, you know, they started out, you know, as typical missionaries do, um, sharing the gospel, but realized very early on that there's no, you can't share the gospel without feeding the hungry and without serving those with, you know, real basic needs. And so they started bringing humanitarian aid and we started serving in orphanages and and um, serving these vulnerable families, whether it was children who um, had cancer, or, you know, the Chernobyl disaster affected Belarus significantly. So serving these kids and serving these families. So it was just a part of my life. Um, and so when my husband and I, we actually met overseas. My husband and I met when I was uh, younger. He came to the church. So when we moved back to the States, you know, I immediately got involved here working with um, youth who were experiencing homelessness and working with um, youth who were at a residential treatment center and then um, just working with also with families who are experiencing poverty and then, uh, you know, started as a court appointed special advocate. And this program together for families really grew as a community effort and a grassroots effort several years ago um, in the juvenile court. Yeah, you know, you talked about, um, it's just always, again, I, I love stories. I just love hearing the the different people that uh, we get to talk with and we get to meet and get to know over, you know, whether it's through the podcast or just doing this work, you know, because there's so many great people. But, you know, the the your cross-cultural living and uh, being able to live over in Belarus and, and you know, and spend some of your childhood there, Um you know, how I, I, we always talk about cross-cultural living and most people think of, oh, that's, that's overseas. That's going somewhere else. And that's the cross-cultural. The reality is we have cross-cultural living in our own backyard as well. And so how did that, that impact you and how are you using that? Uh, and how did it influence you in the role you're currently doing it together for families? Well, you know, all my friends and my husband also, um, when we were dating, we were actually really young when we met were poor. I mean, by American standards, they were very poor. You know, food insecurity was just kind of a normal thing. You you just sometimes didn't have enough food. And so you would just eat maybe macaroni or or a lot of bread or whatever you could get that was cheap. And so these kind of things were the norm there. And, and you can have food insecurity, you can have poverty, you can have all these struggles and you can recognize them and they can affect, you know, people's mental health and they can affect their stress levels. But you can also, you know, you have a lot of love in these families and that just because somebody has poverty or is in poverty doesn't mean that they um, are not hardworking or, or maybe they are, you know, or they're, they're not trying or that they're not a wonderful family. And so I never equated poverty with affecting a person. It was always just like, well, you know, People have different circumstances in their life that can lead them to a place where they're experiencing poverty. And I understood that. So when I came to the States, you know, I, I, I never would look at somebody who's experiencing poverty and say, well, they must be lazy or they must be addicted to drugs or they must not be trying. There's something inherently wrong with them because they're experiencing poverty. Never equated that. And I realized as living here in the States, we often do, whether we say it explicitly but we often do in the way that we judge people and we criminalize poverty in the United States. So it's not, it wasn't in my framework. And I think that's helps me really approach things that we, um, that we work with and that we partner with, with together for families, because I understood that a lot of poverty that people experience is, it's not their fault. Yeah. 
No, definitely. And you know, I know we're going to get deeper into that. There's so much there about that, but I think that's so important to, to whether, whatever it is, the, I think the most important thing about that cross-cultural, um, you know, relationships at any level is, is understanding the other, right? Because we don't, we, you know, and so like with any friend, how do we get to know each other? How do we understand each other? And then in that, then you know how to help. Then you know how they can help you and how they can encourage you. That's something we talk so much about on this, on this show is just being able to understand those who are, you know, different from you. And it's not, you know, we're same in so many ways, but you know, there are so many things that are things to celebrate about, about different differences. And so that's something that, um, you know, I know we're going to get deeper into the poverty, deeper into how you're working with the different people, um, in your community. Uh, but one of the other things that you did, um, have done in, in your, in your past is, uh, you were a CASA, you know, child, uh, court appointed special advocate for children. And, you know, how, how, um, what was it that led you from being a CASA to your current role now with Together for Families? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll go back a little bit further. So before I was at CASA, like I said, you know, we had worked as, as a child, we would visit orphanages and see these kids who were orphans. I never thought about their parents. I just assumed growing up, you know, if a child is an orphan, if a child's in an orphanage, they are abused, their parents don't want them, or their parents are really horrible people, or maybe they're severely mentally ill, they can't take care of them. And that's just the assumption. And then I started working with youth who were experiencing homelessness in Atlanta, and they started talking to me about our foster care system. They had experienced our foster care system. And what I learned from them was that oftentimes, children are being separated from families that are struggling with underlying issues of poverty. And those underlying issues of poverty exasperate any other issues they may have because all of us can suffer from a mental health challenge. We can suffer from depression. We can suffer from anxiety. We can suffer suffer from, you know, a substance abuse or a health issue. So all of us can suffer this, but when you have poverty, it's harder for you to get the help that you need to address those things. And so what I learned from the kids is that foster care didn't help them. Foster care didn't help them that these kids had run away from foster care, they had been moved many times, that they had been separated from their parents and that experience was traumatic. And then oftentimes, where would they go when they would leave? If they would age out or they'd run away, they'd go back to their mom or dad. And if their mom or dad had never received the help that they needed, at the time when the kids or before they were taken, they were a shell of a person oftentimes. So these kids would go back looking for the love that they never found in foster care, go back to their parents trying to relive the experience maybe of their childhood, they experienced some love from that parent. And now that bond is completely broken and fractured. They have these huge gaps of time. They're now maybe a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old young man or young woman, and they're coming back to a mom or a dad who now their substance abuse or mental health issues are a hundred times worse because the worst thing you can do to somebody, a parent, is take their kids. There's no greater punishment you can give a loving parent than to take their kids from them. And so I saw, this is crazy. This is crazy. What did we solve? These kids are, they want it. And there is an innate desire by each of us, a God-given, and we're believers here, God-given innate desire to be accepted and loved by our parents, not just a family, our family. And so we, I saw this in the kids. And so that drove me to wanting to be a CASA. And when I was a CASA, my goal was initially to ensure that kids would not age out of foster care without family. And when I started as a CASA, I was like, oh my goodness, why are we taking these kids from some of these families? They're struggling with poverty. They don't have the resources that they need. They're having health challenges. They're having mess. We can support them and keep the, the children in the home. And so that's what birthed Together for Families started as a grassroots effort in the juvenile court. Um, I ended up having to resign, but it was a great thing because that allowed me to, you know, work with friends and neighbors who are helping us build this program and um, really to address the gaps in the system. And the gaps are there. The gaps, there's this huge poverty gap 
that families are falling through when they're not getting the help to address poverty. And, um, you know, they're at risk of losing their kids. Yeah, no, that's, that's really important. And what I love about your story, uh, Sarah, is that it really kind of ties together a few different things that we do talk about. Um, and, you know, for our listeners, you guys are aware that in a previous role that I had, uh, I did work for a foster family agency. And uh, this system around child welfare is massive. It's massive. And it's run at different uh, county levels, state levels, you know, and of course there's all the national, uh, pieces as well with policy and legislation that comes down from the federal. Um, and it's pretty, uh, interrelated and can be quite complex. Um, and for you, Sarah, working in Georgia, you know, feel free to nuance this towards Georgia as much as you feel is necessary, but you know, you've worked as a CASA, so you've kind of done the court side, you know, to a certain extent. You've, you're right now working in, you know, family preservation, family strengthening, poverty alleviation type of work, but together for families. Um, you've kind of been able to see the child welfare system from a couple different vantage points. Can you just maybe help our audience learn a little bit about the child welfare system as a whole, as you've experienced it in Georgia, or, or feel free to kind of level that up to broader systems? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also experienced, you know, our son, we adopted our son actually from um, from Russia. So, you know, I'm also an adoptive parent. We have um, three biological children and he, he's um, our fourth child who we adopted from Russia. So I've seen that side too in the trauma that kids experience in orphanages overseas and, um, you know, just being separated from their their family, their biological family. Um, so yeah, our child welfare system in the United States, I mean, we could sit here all day and discuss it and I probably still would get some things wrong because, um, every single state is run differently. And then sometimes it feels like every single county is run differently and even more so every, you know, a single judge, um, um, sees things a little bit differently, but essentially what happens is. I can just give you, you know, the role as it relates to kind of together for families. Essentially what happens is you might have a social worker at a school or a medical professional and they might see a kid coming to school, you know, and they 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 tell them they're sleeping in their car or 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 something's going on in their life. And and so that social worker in the trying to in the best interest of the child will make a report to, you know, as a mandated reporter and report this and child protective services will go out well they'll decide whether they're going to investigate it or not so people have to understand in the county that i live so this is just one county um last year there were nine thousand reports of child abuse and neglect more than 60 percent of those reports are neglect and they're usually um issues of poverty and so out of those 9,000, you know, uh, a lot of them are see weeded out, you know, seeded out so they don't actually investigate them. But uh, about 1,200 were investigated, so reports of maltreatment. So when they're investigated, Child Protective Services will go out, they'll investigate the family, and they'll see, like, okay, does this raise to the standard of uh, child maltreatment, or it doesn't? And if it raises to the standard of child maltreatment, you know, they'll open up a case of the family and they'll provide some services. And the thing about it is the services that these child protective services workers can provide are counseling, um, uh, you know, maybe substance abuse counseling. They can provide maybe, a, you know, um, a parenting aid for the parent or behavioral aid for the parent. Um, and they can provide some parenting classes, but they really don't have anything at least in our state here in Georgia, and I know that every state's a little bit different, but overall, they don't really have anything to address the concrete needs of these families. So we know that 80% of families who have interaction with child welfare system or involved in the child welfare system live 200% below the poverty line. So just imagine being the case manager and you're going out and mom is sleeping in her car with her kids because she does, you know, she was living with, um, um, Let's say she was living with her her boyfriend and he was paying for the housing and he was abusive. And so she moves into her car. She's doing the right thing. She can't find a shelter. She needs to get a job. She needs to get food. She doesn't have food stamps. 
And now you come in and your child protective service worker and you're like, you know, you can't live in your car with your kids. And she's like, okay, help me, help me. And they're like, okay, well, let's try to connect you to community-based organizations that can provide you shelter. What I can do for you is I'm going to give you counseling. I can give you a parenting class and I can give, and mom's just like, my basic needs are not met. I can't, I can't think about a parenting class. Right. I know. And, and the parents are usually already, they feel like garbage because they're, they know this is not adequate for their children. They know this is not the best situation. So, so at that point, um, you know, they can provide services in the home, but there's nothing really to address the concrete needs of these families that are struggling with poverty. And then they can choose, you know, if it gets too bad, then they can remove the kids and the kids can go into t- traditional foster care or they can remove the kids and they can safety plan them with a relative or try to place them with a family member. So these are kind of their choices. And the thing that's really, really um, bothers me is that we've given case managers this one tool um, to really help families get housing and food or help children. And it is, we're only going to house your kids. We'll pay for room and board in a stranger's home. We'll pay for food in a stranger's home. If you're a loving parent, we'll pay for food and room and board in a stranger's home. But you know what? We have nothing to help you to pay for room and board to keep the kids with a loving mom. And that's bothersome. And it, and I, and I know it affects the case managers too. Because if you know this is a loving mom and all you got for her is like, I can take your kids and then put them in housing. <laughs> right. That's not empowering. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's such an important and overlooked area of this. And, and a lot of what you're describing, it, you know, there is difference when you go, you know, state versus state, county versus county. And and even when you look at the different systems across the country, some of these systems are run at the state level. Some of them are run at the county level. Like, like even that is not, you know, even that's going to vary. You know, I live in Washington state now. Child welfare is run at the state level. When I was in California, it's primarily run at the county level. So you get these big variances, but a lot of these realities are, are in some ways similar. And, and Sarah, as you're talking, you know, think orphan, we do talk about the U S systems. We do talk about foster care and adoption um, and of course, we also talk about global orphan care and care reform um, and family-based care in the global South. And as you're describing reasons that are leading kids to foster care, I imagine that a lot of our listeners are getting um, are getting flashbacks of conversations that we've had of why kids end up in orphanages. You know, it's it's why are kids entering care, and why are so many of them entering care for preventable reasons. Um, and poverty is obviously one that is underlying a lot uh, and exacerbates, as you said, all of these other issues that are that are facing children. Um, could you just maybe really kind of pin down because it's such a core focus for together for families, this reality of poverty? You've already alluded to this some, you know, the 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 single mom in the car. But what are some other ways that poverty is really um, leading to families becoming involved with child welfare or, you know, uh, contributing to that to that family separation in, in the context of Georgia? Sure. We say, you know, we have all different um, terms for types of neglect. We have medical neglect, you know, and that sounds terrible. You imagine a parent who is choosing not to get their child medical care. And that can happen. It's very rare, but it can happen. Or you, you have educational neglect. It's, you know, a parent who's refusing to give their child an education. And children can be removed for medical neglect. They can be removed for educational neglect, you know, inadequate housing. These are all removals that can happen. And and so the thing that people don't realize is more often than not, when you look at medical neglect, what you're looking at is you're looking at, for instance, a circumstance we have right now, a mom who has a child who's on a trach, who she struggles with transportation, she struggles with poverty, she's at home with this child 24-7, she can barely pay her bills because she's not able to work, because she's a loving mom who loves her child who is on a trach, and she's a single mom, and so now she's struggling to get to the hospital 
uh, and get the Medicaid, um, you know, she didn't, she wasn't able to get the Medicaid driver set up. So she was struggling to find the resources to set that up, to get a nurse to come into the home. And she has all these bills and, and her utilities are about to shut off and she has a kid on the trach. So there you have a case where literally that's a medical neglect case. That's medical, but the underlying issue is poverty. It, and so educational neglect, educational neglect could be could be um, a mom who is homeless and she's couch surfing. So she's gone from one home to another home, friends, whoever will let her sleep with her kids on the couch because, you know, she can't stay in one place long enough to get a job because nobody's allowing her to stay with her three kids long enough to get a job. So she has to move from one place to another and she's moving so often, maybe every two weeks that it's not enough time to enroll the kids in school or maybe even she's being loving that she's not enrolling the kids in school. I had one parent who told me, she said, that, you know, they're getting me on educational neglect. I'm My kids are coming home to a car. They don't want to go to school, so I'm not forcing them to go to school. My kids are coming home to sleep down on the couch and they're exhausted. So no, I'm not making them go to school. And so sometimes it's just the parent doing what they feel is best in a very bad circumstance for their child. And so we have these terms, you know, educational neglect or medical neglect, often underlying issues of poverty. And we talk about, you know, okay, substance abuse. Substance abuse is, and it depends what region you are in, it depends what county you are in, whether it's a bigger problem or a less problem, but even substance abuse. Oftentimes, the, you know, the families that you see are, that are using and abusing substances, you're seeing them compensate or using them to deal with a mental health issue because we don't have mental health services for these families. And I can tell you how hard it is because I advocate for these families to get them mental health services to get the mental health help. And even the families who wanna go into a rehab to get recovery, how hard it is to try to get a waiting list by the time you're on that waiting list to get recovery. So we don't have the help that these families need available for all the families that need the help. But we have the, I would understand if we didn't have the money at all. We're like, hey, we just don't have the money. Like we can't, sorry, we don't, we don't have the money to pay for mental health services. We don't have the money to pay for affordable housing. But we do, we're spending $93 million in Georgia, you know, on foster care, and we spend $22 million on preservation, on, on trying to keep, you know, prevention. So we have money, it's just the way that the money is allocated. And that's what bothers me so much, because I'm like, wait a second, we have money. We have money. <laughs> well, we're just using it for the wrong things. Yeah, you know, there... There's so much that we could go into. Like, like most of these interviews, we go over hours and hours to talk about all the nuances and intricacies. But one of the things that hopefully will help the listener kind of wrap their mind around it. Do you have like a story, just a story about a family, a particular family, obviously can't use names, but that you've partnered with that will help flesh out the dynamics and play around uh, poverty and preserving families? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of families that are living in cars. We have one mom, you know, she's now uh, stably housed, but she had aged out of foster care herself. And, you know, when she aged out of foster care, she um, didn't have any of the tools or, or the resources or community because you're separated from community and moved around um, for her to be successful. And she had kids of her own. And, you know, as she had kids, she she struggled because she didn't have that community and she didn't have that support. So oh, she ended up um, being evicted from her house and living in her car uh, with her children. And at the time when um, she was living in her car, Child Protective Services got involved. And when Child Protective Services got involved, they offered her some counseling and they were trying to help connect her to resources and they they connected her to us. We were able to help her um, immediately. We were able to put her up in a hotel so that she could be stable um, in that hotel. She ended up going um, to actually stay with um, the children's father in another state, and that didn't work out. She ended up back in her car, came back to Georgia, helped her again, put her up in a hotel, helped her con get connected to the resources and the housing resources, and helped her with food and clothing and all these kind of things so that the kids wouldn't be removed and they would have what they needed in, in the interim. And um, she works as a nurse assistant, and she's a wonderful young lady. And during that period of time, she, you know, she was able to get into housing. But we've had a different circumstances. Like, there's so many crazy stories because, you know, I didn't even know, but you you can go to jail for, um, you know, driving without insurance. So we had one mom who was also living in her car with her kids, 
And, you know, we we get her into a program, a housing program, and it's like a 60 day housing program. Right when she gets in there, you know, the police catch her. She's driving out without insurance. And, you know, uh, some of her car was breaking down and she goes to jail for a night. And and then just like these challenges these families are facing. So she goes to jail for a night. Her car gets impounded. She has to get her car out of the impound. Well, she doesn't have any money to do that. So we help her get her car out of the impound. Um, so that she could, you know, get back on the road, help her get what she needs to, um, so that she could go to her job. And, you know, in that, that two, two week window when she, um, didn't get a paycheck, you know, just helping her with those gas carts. And these, these families, if they don't have anybody to walk alongside them, if they don't have anybody who can help them, um, they often fall through the cracks. So we all kind of have, if we think about it, a fallback person, you know, like my parents are my fallback. If I need a babysitter, if I need something, you know, my parents are there. These families often don't have a fallback person. And so we as a community and especially as a church should be there for those families. This episode is brought to you by the Attachment and Trauma-Focused Therapy online course by Deborah Gray. You guys remember hearing my conversation with Deborah Gray in episode 208. And after decades of this work and a catalog of books, she's truly one of the most impactful therapists and thought leaders on trauma and attachment issues relating to orphans and vulnerable children. The ATFT program was produced by One Million Home and is available in partnership with the Honestly Adoption Company. You guys have heard our friend Mike Berry on the pod in the past two, of course, and for a limited time, this course is available for only $99. In the course, Deborah covers an array of topics that are pertinent to both parents and clinicians. One of the best things that you can do is refer this to a therapist that you know to get better equipped and also get their annual continuing education units. It's a full-length accredited postgraduate program with over 20 hours of training, and it's critical information for those of us in the sector. I first went through the course back in 2021 and was so blown away that I knew I wanted our team at One Million Home to make this course more available to a broader audience. So go to honestlyadoption.com front slash ATFT to sign up. Use the promo code ATFT99 to get the huge discount. I mean, guys, professionals typically pay $1,500 for this course up here in the Seattle area, but you could dive in for so much less and be better equipped to love and serve kids coming from hard places. Yeah, no, that's really well said. And, you know, I, I kind of want to drill into that a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk about the kind of big picture budget where the money goes here in a second. But, you know, you mentioned the church, you mentioned the community involvement. Um, I think you guys have pretty good volunteer engagement as well that are involved. What does that look like from you for you guys programmatically to engage the community in this type of work and, and really to also leverage a volunteer workforce? Yeah, absolutely. So we would try to create opportunities for everyone to contribute in some way, whether that's coming to the resource center and processing donations, whether that's hosting a donation drive, or whether that's being a family advocate where they're trained to work directly with a family. Um, and then we we really leverage the community in other ways, like businesses to do uh, provide free services for our families. Christian Brothers Automotive has have been amazing. They've uh, given a car to a family and they help us with free or um, at cost car repairs for our family. So really um, letting the community know about our needs and then allowing them and giving them the opportunity to meet the needs of these families so that they can stay together. We have a lot of great church partners. However, if you look in our county at how many churches we have, you know, what is it? I don't know, like 200 churches, 300, I don't know, many more because they're everywhere. And you look how many churches are actually actively involved. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. Like how, how many churches are actually putting their, the churches, we have some amazing churches that partner with us and who are doing their own work in the community. But there's so many churches that they just focus inward and they're not focused outward. And that is not, that that's not what Jesus did. And so we really have to consider as, as, as a community of believers, what are we doing? Yeah. What, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing if we're not reaching outward? Yeah. Amen. And, and hopefully, you know, we, as people listen to this, you know, if your church is not involved in this type of work, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that there's, you know, together for families is a local organization, a local program there. 
but there should be opportunities. Um, and, and if you don't know of anything else, reach out to me and Phil, and we'll see if we can figure out something for your given context, because we want to see the church involved in these types of spaces. And uh, there are opportunities. You know, there wasn't too long ago that we had uh, Adrian Lewis and Jake Jake Barth on the podcast talking about Care Portal, you know, or like there, there there's various ways. And, and it doesn't just have to be, we'll become a foster parent. Because, unfortunately, that has been, uh, not, not unfortunately, I don't want to put it that way, but that has been the overarching uh, call to action on the church. And unfortunately, uh, families like the ones that Together for Families is, uh, are supporting and walking alongside uh, have been overlooked. And to be honest, if you came around these vulnerable families, it would go much further towards that kid's mental health, their ability to succeed as adults and, and all of those outcomes. Um, I do want to circle back around. So, Brandon, I just oh. want to real quick add there, Don't you know, if you're out there listening and you're part of a church and you want to get involved and you're going, what the heck do I do? You know, you can reach out to Jason Johnson with KFO. Um, I guarantee um, either there is already somebody in your community who is heading up church partnership stuff and being able, and there's probably an alliance in your area as well that will help point you to the right people. Or Jason could help you to maybe start one in your community. I mean, if you have that passion, that could be something. Alliances are so critical. We have one here in the in the Sacramento region. I just pointed somebody to a friend in Colorado or uh, Fort Collins, Colorado to Carrie Stewart there. So there's people that we know that we can connect you with who will be able to connect you with the right people because it's not necessarily you have to know that one person. No, they probably know somebody who is who can help you out in what how you can get involved. Yeah, and definitely if you're in the Atlanta area, then you already know who to reach out to. That's Sarah and her team at Together for Families. Um, I do kind of want to circle back around something, you know, for us uh, as citizens of the United States, as citizens of our given uh, country and our given state, um, you know, our tax dollars go somewhere. And one of the ways that tax dollars are used is in health and human services types of types of programs, right? So when we say, well, where does the money come from for foster care? Well, it comes from, it comes from taxpayers, you know, they're like, there is an origin to this. And we as, you know, citizens should have our voices heard as far as the types of programs that we should be passionate about. So um, I do kind of want to follow the money a little bit and, and have you tell us about, you know, the systems that are set up and, and what you guys are interacting with in terms of government spending in Georgia. So to give a snapshot, I did find the uh, the Georgia Department of uh, Human Services 2023 budget. Okay. And this is, uh, the budget is $920 million overall. Um, as one might imagine, over a third of that, the largest service program is foster care and adoption. That's $356 million. Uh, and then 228 million goes to child welfare services, right? So that's going to be the professional agencies that are also doing other types of services, you know, whatever. And then you have 135 million to low income family support. I don't know what all that entails, but if we were just to juxtapose those numbers against each other, it might tell us a little bit of a story. But we want to hear from you, Sarah, as somebody working within that space. Uh, what are your thoughts on the allocation of tax dollars, uh, child, uh, you know, the human services budget to assumedly, right? We're trying to help children here. Um, how would you view any potential misappropriation of budgets or as a service provider? You know, how do you guys try and fill the gaps where some of these things are under resourced? I mean, how would you kind of analyze and maybe reappropriate? you know, some of these government funding? And are we spending too much on stuff like foster care and adoption, child welfare services to the neglect of the reality of poverty for a lot of these families? How would you kind of chop that up, Sarah? So I I would completely rewire the money if I was in charge. Um, that's, but foster care is really expensive. Okay. And, um, you know, Kudos to to everyone who who decides to be a foster parent. And I want to go back quickly before we get to this about talking about the churches, um, you know, and their foster care ministries. We have we missed the mark. 
the church missed the mark. And and now we have an opportunity to change that. And we have been so focused on on orphan care and on um, foster care that we forgot that these children have families and there's this thing called family care and that God calls us to take care of those who are struggling with poverty and those who are needy. He calls us to take care of the orphans, but most of these children who are in foster care are not orphans, not even legal orphans. And so we missed the mark because we are so, we're just like the federal government. We're just like the federal government. We focus all of our energy on on the the, the foster care and the orphan side instead of all of our energy on the prevention side. So we've all missed the mark. And it's an opportunity for us to think and be like, you know what? What can we do? What can we do? Because we might not be able to change all the laws, but certainly we can change what goes on inside our churches and inside the inside the Christian community. What can we do to go from orphan care to family care? And it, it really disturbs me because I'm like, oh my gosh, we have all these churches, amazing churches, and they have these foster care ministries. And they have these, they wrap around the foster parents and it's wonderful. We have these giving foster parents and then we have the church just wraps around them and somebody brings them a meal and somebody brings, you know, provides transportation, respite care. But we don't have that for these families who, who are at risk of losing their children, who love their children. Most families who come into, you know, the child welfare center, children who come into foster care are not there because of abuse. I think nationally it's like 17%. In my county, it's about 14%. So these are most families love their children. And if we wrapped around them as a church and as a faith community, the same way we wrap around foster care, we wouldn't need foster care or we would need it very little. And so the federal government does the same thing. We, because we as a society have judged these, these families. Even the church, we judge these families because if we really did believe that they were worthy, we wouldn't be investing in a family care system and not just in foster care. If we really believed that there was potential for redemption and reconciliation, we really believed that they were deserving, we would be investing in them. We don't believe that. We don't believe it. And that's a problem with us because and, and this is what I keep thinking, you know, Jesus, he was on the cross and he was dying if we believe that. And there's a man dying next to him who was a criminal. And he comes to Jesus and he says, you know, he asks Jesus, you know, forgive. You, you, I believe you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you know, you'll be with me in heaven. All of your sins are forgiven. That's the kind of Jesus we serve. So it, if we are not setting the pace, if we're not even, why do we think our federal government would believe in these these families? So we see it. You know, we see the federal dollars, you know, 75% in most, in most states, you know, it's, it's geared to federal dollars. They're geared towards foster care, $30,000, $32,000 a year, I believe to, to care for one child in foster care who has no special needs. You're talking about that young child who's on a trade, who we're serving their family, who we're loving on their family. That young child might be $150,000 a year to keep that child with their mom safely, a parent. I'm not talking about leaving kids with somebody who's abusing them. I'm not talking about leaving kids with somebody who doesn't love them. I'm talking about leaving kids with people who love them and need help. And so we leave that kid with that mom. What's that going to cost us? A few thousand dollars. So yeah, absolutely, we need to rewire the money. But we should start, we, I mean, that's a podcast I really was excited to be on it because it's talking to the church. And I feel like I can talk to the church because, you know, I'm a preacher's kid. <laughs> so I can say that stuff. No, we couldn't tell, Sarah. We couldn't tell. Yeah, I feel like I You can keep preaching. Yeah, I could, I, I'm allowed to say this stuff, but I really do feel like, come on. If we want other people to get it right, we need to get it right. No, uh, well said, and 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 I'm right there with you. You know, when we when we do think about you know the the opportunities ahead of the church, you know, hopefully we can stop overlooking you know these families, you know, and what you're describing. I mean, I I've seen this I've seen this myself. You know, when it comes to uh, just the cost around foster care. You know, I remember talking with um, with families uh, or with um, uh, with uh, like prospective foster families or community people in California that wanted to know, well, how much does it cost when a kid goes into care? And, and well, you know, we say, well, the stipend is this much and the child welfare agency gets this much. And these things add up, 
you know, because if we say, look, to do uh, more high-end intensive services, foster care, or whatever, it's going to be, you know, the stipend for the foster families, 3000 in California, the county that I was in, it's $3,000 a month. Well, you go that for a year, that's 36 k not including what the child welfare agency gets. So the government, you know, gets from the state or, you know, it does, it does add up and, and these costs are exorbitant. And to realize that it's so much more affordable for that kid to be with their own family and just to support them at that point of care, right? Um, and, you know, again, this is very similar to the conversations that we've had, um, you know, when it comes to the global orphan care space. So uh, I would definitely encourage our listeners to uh, continue to think about these things and engage um, your community as far as, you know, what the, you know, what, is, what does it look like for, for you in, in your context? For sure. For sure. 100%. I think um, there's a lot that we can do to change this. And we, we, you know, we're just changing this in our community and working towards changing our community, showing people what's possible when these families are, you know, uh, um, loved and cared for. And if that's possible here, then it's possible anywhere. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, uh, as, as Brandon said, I mean, these, these are issues that are not unique to one place around the world. And there are things that are, as we talk about on this show so much, it's, these issues are nuanced, you know, as human beings are nuanced and as every human relationship is nuanced, you can't just say, oh, this is the answer. You can't just say, you know, we've always said on this, there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing that's going to fix everything. And as you said, you know, there are, there are different family situations where we have to say, you know, family, family strengthening, family preservation isn't the answer to everything either. But if we just immediately say, oh, the families can't do it, we need to go to foster care adoption, which is what, you know, we kind of did for a while, right? And and uh, and a lot of people still think that. And so just, we need to educate, we need to help people understand. And I think once people understand that they will want to do what we're talking about doing, they just don't, I think, don't know. And like you were talking about, I think a lot of times the churches don't talk about it. Um, the uh, last couple questions, you know, of course, you know, like we said, we could go on and on and on, but we don't have time. Um, and so we have a couple questions we ask all of our guests. And the first question of those are, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? So I'm going to be really corny, but I would say, you know, um, the thing for me is honestly, I have a lot of books that I've read and a lot of um, different things, but what guides, you know, a lot of my life is the Bible. And so in the Bible, it tells us whoever oppresses the poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And the Bible speaks all the time about caring for the poor and for the needy and those who are struggling with poverty and caring for families. And so um, I believe our work at Together for Families is um, an example of that kind of love. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure it is. And I hope it is. And I, I have no doubt based on what we've heard today, it's, it's 100% modeling what, what scripture is talking about. Um, and the last question we have, what, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Hmm, what person? Um, well, you know, I'm going to say Molly Turner. I listened to her, um, YouTube and she talked about the foster care industry and it was in um, when I was just starting as a CASA and starting to question why our system was functioning in the way that it was functioning, that it was separating loving families that are supporting them. And so she's influenced a lot of, uh, you know, she had a, I was so thankful to listen to that on YouTube. So I think she's influenced, um, I follow her on LinkedIn and uh, um, I think she's a leader in this space. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much for being a part of the conversation. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your passion. I mean, it, it never met you in person, but it shines through through uh, the Internet for sure. And I'm sure our, our audience could um, could hear that, too. And just it's not just passion, but uh, but a lot of wisdom uh, coming through as well. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Philip. When we know better, we can do better. So, you know, we know better. We can do better. Thanks.
Well, uh, you know, as you talked about before, Brandon, uh, Sarah did not disappoint. And I, I just, I love, love hearing, you know, especially from people I, I don't know. And that's always something that's cool for me is to get to know people, but learn from people um, and, you know, learn some some really important things that uh, you know, we've been doing this a really long time. So I just love when we talk about leaders or learners, there is more stuff than we could ever imagine to learn and God can continue teaching us. So I, I just appreciate that a lot. Yeah, no, de- definitely did not disappoint, you know, and I essentially took a flyer out on Sarah. I, like I mentioned, I think I had a couple mutual contacts, but it was more just kind of a social media connection. But with her, in if you guys have not connected with her on LinkedIn or wherever else she might be, uh, please do because we want to have these types of voices in this conversation, people that are really advocating on behalf of vulnerable families, including, you know, here locally in the U.S. Um, you know, a lot our, our biggest, you know, contingency of listeners is right here in the U.S. And the types of things that Sarah is is bringing up are things that apply here locally within your within your county, right? Uh, it's not just this happening in Atlanta or area, but but really, I mean, this is something that applies wherever you are. And, and we have to, if we're going to effectively serve children, at-risk children, vulnerable children, you know, uh, then we have to get into supporting their families that they come from. And, and this is going to, it's not just a, it's not just because we're called to this space, you know, as followers, which we talked about on the show, uh, but also this is actually going to be a more effective and more efficient way for our government to run um, with us, you know, stepping up on behalf of these families and really advocating that uh, we don't have needless family separation here in the U.S. Uh, and and unfortunately, that has happened. And um, you know, part of the part of the results that we see when it comes to kids that have been in the foster care system. It's not just, well, that's because they came from a bad spot and then they were like transient within the foster care system. No, I mean, it's the system itself that has some gaps. And I think that from, you know, Sarah would really be able to, has been able to kind of put her finger on one of those gaps. And that's really, man, we just got to come together for these families and see that they, you know, have an opportunity to keep their kids um, and that some of these things are preventable. So, yeah, I just appreciated the conversation with Sarah. I'm really glad we had her on. She really brought the fire. Uh, I love it. I, I really love it. And one of the other things that I think is really important to take away from that conversation is we talk about advocating at the government level, right? We, we, we've talked about that a few times on the podcast. We don't talk about it enough after seeing those numbers. There is, that's in Georgia alone, like close to a billion dollars going to children and families. And a third of it goes to adoption foster care, which, you know, as we've said on the show, it's not a bad thing, but that's, that I think is, is just what people know. And it's the more obvious. And as we talk about in the church and mission trips and all this other stuff, it's the thing that, that is the most tangible and it's the, it's the affirmative thing that they can prove is quote unquote successful, but you can't prove a negative, right? So when you keep a family healthy, it's hard to justify that. But we as advocates need to help them understand, as she said, it's way cheaper to keep a family healthy than it is to you know, help a child incorporate and into a new family um, and a substitute family. And there will always be that brokenness. And, you know, I'm a massive advocate for adoption and foster care. People on the show know that. So if this is the only time you're listening to this, don't hear what I'm not saying. But, you know, how can we make it a both and and only have the adoption and foster care for those instances that are absolutely necessary. And there are those instances and we need to, but, but if we, if we continually just say default mode is adoption, foster care, we will rip a lot of people from families that don't, 
lead children from families that don't need to be. And so, but that takes the money being able to be put there and, um, and invested in it because where the money goes, that's where also the time and energy and resources, not just financial resources go to as well. So that's something that I really, even just from the question that you asked, how she talked about it, but even just seeing those numbers in black and white made it so clear to me that's an area that is that is so important because there is a ton of money that is being put, at least here in the States. Here in the States, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak to foreign governments and how much they're pouring into, but I imagine it's not, I imagine the numbers look a little different, but the percentages probably don't change a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, and I would just, you know, going back to that, conversation and underscore something you know she she had a very I, I think a sound critique of how Christians have operated in this space and you you guys know Phil and I are believers this is a Christian podcast we we rejoice and she mentioned she's an adoptive parent I'm an adoptive parent so it's not like we're gonna throw shade at substitute or alternative families we do recognize that in certain situations, that's what's best for a given child. But when she talks about, look, there are opportunities for us to do what we do for foster families within our church and to do that for just vulnerable families at risk of becoming separated. Man, if we don't hear that, we're missing something big. Um, You know, one of the things that I think about as a believer is, you know, we, when we recognize the power of, you know, like Christ's word said, they'll know me by the way that you love one another, man, when we actually expand that love to include those people that maybe don't even know him, but are just out in the community and we're not over there beating them over the head with a Bible or anything, but just expanding the love. So if we're showing this type of love to, you know, families that have welcomed kids in through foster care and adoption in our church and praise God for that, But if we expand that to vulnerable families in our community, we're going to reach more kids. We're going to be more effective. We're going to, you know, lighten the load on some other people in the community, including the government. And that's going to lead to a more effective and a more beautiful expression of what it means to be the community of God. And as she mentioned, you know, there's some churches that get this right, and that's amazing. And there's a lot of churches that... um, aren't really involved. And uh, we don't do that to disparage anybody, but just to recognize we are one body. There is one church and all of us, uh, regardless of our expression or, you know, certain sub beliefs that we have, we are the church and we have to, you know, step up to the plate for that. So uh, I, I just couldn't underscore that enough what she was saying in there. Absolutely. Well, you, everyone out there knows you and I could talk about this for a lot longer, but, uh, you know, we are going to wrap it up. And before we wrap it up, you know, you out there know there's going to be a recommendation coming. So Brandon, what you got for us? Well, this is one, uh, and Phil, you know, when I was first on the podcast, episode 117, somehow I have that memorized and I was just, a. it was a, it was a, a was defining just, moment in your life, Brandon. Defining, defining moment, moment in your yeah, life. absolutely. Just a just a just a young man with a Swahili book in Tanzania. You know, I mentioned this book uh, by Karen Wells, Childhood in a Global Perspective, and one of the things that she talks about is again is not a Christian writer or anything, but it's a fantastic book. It's what I use when I teach uh, at the grad level and at the undergrad level. But one of the things that she talks about is this reality of child saving and um, child saving. It, this isn't just like, um, like, oh, well, that's just going on in Georgia or, oh, that's just going on in sub-Saharan Africa with these orphanages. We're just removing kids. You know, this is actually there's there's a historical precedent when it comes to it's a poor family. Let's remove the child like there's a historical precedent with that around child saving. And this uh, kind of. Uh, uh, what would I say? It's it's kind of like the the tension between child saving and child rights. And then for us as believers to kind of understand, you know, what's our place in that and how can we recognize that we're not child savers. <laughs> we can't save children, but what we can do is love children. We can love families um, and we can ensure that we're not in the name of child saving needlessly removing kids from poor families. And unfortunately, like I said, there's historical precedents for that. So if you guys haven't read Karen Wells' book, it's it's academic. I know I'm, I have a bad rap for that. I mentioned Yuri Broffenbrenner last time and now Karen Wells. I know I'm such a 
dork. Um, at any rate, uh, Karen Wells, childhood and a global perspective. Uh, last year, she, or I guess now it's 2023. So in 2021, she released a new edition, the third edition. So uh, that would be my recommendation. And it and it builds off of some of what Sarah was talking with us. How that how those types of uh, how those types of mindsets play out in Georgia, it plays out in other areas as well. So that would be my recommendation. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, we expect nothing less than that from you, Brandon. So, you know, it's, you're, you're a, you're right. As we said, you're kind of like that, that hipster geek that, so it's, you know, it balances out and with that beard, you can get away with a lot. So, I mean, that's the beauty of it. So, um, but we love you for it and, uh, check it out. Definitely check that out. Cause the one thing, it may be a bit heady, but these are things that have informed, um, you know, Brandon and, and the students that he's teaching. And if you're really serious about learning more about this stuff, I would, I would definitely take these recommendations seriously because we don't just throw them out there because we need to have something. We, you know, we put it out there because we know it'll help you doing the work that you're doing, which is really, really important work. So if you're just winging it, um, you know, don't just wing it. It, it's it's too important to just not be fully informed as much as you can. Obviously, we don't have time to read every book and listen to every podcast and do whatever. But um, but if that's something that that hits hits what you're doing, definitely definitely read it. So with that, folks, you know, with everything, we'll have that in the show notes. Anything that we talked about on this show that you want to check out, it's in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of us, you can. There will be a link there too. Um, Please, please take all that you're learning from this show and don't just don't just listen and throw it aside or don't just listen and go on to your next thing. Process it. Take some time to think about it and take everything that you're learning from this, this show and all the stuff that you're taking from it and you use it to help you love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.